Why are local and regional networks important for building research capacity in lower middle income countries? Mainly there are two reasons why I think they are important. The first is that it helps to stimulate discussions around specific research questions, uh, mainly by bringing the uh, researchers together and allow them to talk to each other, uh, particularly about the research and also about their interests and the questions. The second reason is that it helps to build collaboration and capacity, mainly by ensuring collaborative contributions, skills and technologies transfer, as well as equitable sharing of research benefits and recognitions. The third reason is that it ensures continuity by ensuring community vibrancy and dynamism of research communities, basically long after the grant for the research project or capacity which established them has ended. I hope that this provides further motivation for network-based approach towards establishing research uh, capacity in Linux. Thank you. Welcome to your digital mentor. Coming to you from the Welcome Genome Campus Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, but in fact from home, I'm Dr. Alice Matimba. And I'm Isabella Monta. We are your hosts for today's episode. In this episode, we'll be discussing the importance of networking, how as a researcher you can develop and maintain your networks, and how to get people to know you and come to you. In other words, build your social capital. With us, we have Dr. Siva Arhiman and Dr. Swain Chain. Before you dive into the discussion, please could you both tell us briefly about yourselves and your research work, starting with you, Sylvia? Yes, hi. I am a genomic epidemiologist at the Center for Genomic Pathogen Surveillance, uh, which is located at the Wellcome Genome Campus near Cambridge in England. In my work, I use genomics to study the emergence and spread of resistance to antibiotics in bacterial pathogens. But a big part of my work also aims at bringing genomic epidemiology and, and the technology to public health settings in countries where the expertise is not prevalent. And this is usually through international collaborations and training courses. Thank you, Sue. And on to you, Swain. Hello, my name is Swain Chen. I'm an associate professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the National University of Singapore and also a group leader in bacterial genomics at the Genome Institute of Singapore. In my research, I run a lab that primarily uses two bacterial systems to understand why some bacteria are very good at causing infections in humans. Those two systems are E. coli, which cause urinary tract infections, and group B streptococci that are a newly discovered cause of foodborne infection. For both of these systems, E. coli and group B streptococcus, we use both bacterial genetics and we combine that with experimental mouse infection models. And we also integrate genomic analysis to guide the genetic and mechanistic work that we do. Welcome, and hopefully today we'll, we'll hear a lot about your experiences and how networking has helped your careers and your research. So firstly, you know, we, we want to talk about the importance of networking. So in business, they say your network is your net worth. And I'm sure you agree that this is also true in research, where it is well established that scientists who have an expanded network will have an edge over others when it comes to things like grant funding, getting publications in high impact factor journals, research awards, getting invited to conferences and even, you know, top job offers and getting promoted in, in their uh, institutions. So Swain, how has networking played a role in your career and in your research? And what are some of the most influential relationships or networks you've developed in your career? Well, first, thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about some of these issues. As you said, yeah, networking is extremely important. You covered a lot of the sort of basics of where networking 
helps people or that people talk about networking is important for for papers and grants and you know collaborations and and particularly for job search. And I would say that you know me coming to Singapore. So maybe a little background to put that in context. I was born and raised in the U.S. I did all my training in the U.S. After my postdoc, then I moved to Singapore to start my first independent position as an assistant professor at the National University of Singapore. And of course, networking was a, a very big part of this in terms of making this decision to come to Singapore, knowing some people out here beforehand and, and hearing about the job opportunities that were in Singapore. That was really through a few individuals who, who had made their way to Singapore prior to my coming out here as well. So I think that was really important. And then, you know, maybe to give you a more specific example, that's a little bit outside of those kind of traditional things about papers and you know job search and stuff like that. I mentioned that my lab studies two infection systems, E. coli and Group B streptococcus. And one of the things that happened when I came to Singapore is, of course, you start to integrate yourself into the scientific community here. You make some friends, you make some collaborations. When I moved to Singapore, I was only working on E. coli. And then there was an outbreak of Group B streptococcus infections in 2015 in Singapore. And it was partially because I had done some of the networking already, just as part of normal you know, work and career. But then some people knew that I was doing bacterial genomics. And so that's why I got pulled into a project to help with the genomic studies of what was going on with this unusual outbreak of Group B streptococcus infections. And that now has actually turned into a major part of the lab through those initial connections, through those networking, we got pulled into this project. We helped with some of the genome sequencing and analysis, right? And it was really through that networking that, that really helped establish those connections with people that ended up being on the front lines of, of understanding that outbreak. And that's what really pulled me in and now has become a major part of my lab. Wow, that's really interesting. And I think what you're saying is that networking is something that you should be doing all the time anyway. And um, one day it will yield some results. So it's not something that you kind of know for sure that it's going to it's going to get you any results, isn't it? Yeah, I think actually it probably works better that way. You know, we do spend a lot of time doing experiments. I think both Sylvia and I spend a lot of time in front of computers. I think all of us spend a lot of time in front of computers now. But at the end of the day, science is a very social collaborative kind of job and career. And I think it just sort of works better if, you know, that's not necessarily that you have a goal for networking, right? That it's just part of what you we should be doing in terms of communicating science, you know, the types of things that Sylvia is talking about in terms of going out and doing outreach and, and sort of spreading expertise to places that don't have it. I mean, this is just something that I find fun to go talk to people and, and make new friends and hear about interesting work. Yeah. And Sylvia, yeah. Bro, you depend on networking very much. What importance do you think it has in tackling some of the most challenging global health issues? Exactly because of what you just said, because these issues are global. We've all realized by now that we can really work in isolation, each one of us in our labs, each one of us in our country, in terms of antimicrobial resistance, which is one of the things I work on. It's pretty clear that it emerges in one location, but then it quickly spreads to the entire planet. So there are a lot of collaborative efforts now being funded to try to look at it from a global perspective and to try to bring this technology that I mentioned, genomics in my case, to other countries where there, it might not be commonly used yet. So a lot of the, the networks that I've built and that, you know, are basically motivated by, by this. But some of us are terrified of networking. 
And when we invited you for this episode, you said you suffered a bit from networking phobia. How do you do to overcome it? Yeah, so um, just to give you a little bit of background as well, I sort of realized how important the network networks are also from my experience. When I was a student, no one told me, oh, you know, you should build a network and this is really important. And you basically start building a network when you're doing your PhD, maybe by, you know, talking to other students. And then you realize that you start to, you know, then meet PIs in your field. And, and what happened to me was that because I changed subject several times and I moved countries several times, suddenly I found myself starting in a new area of research in a new country and realized that I had somewhat lost my network, right? Because now I had to meet experts in this new field and build it again. So that's when I realized how important it is, really. And for someone who uh, is not particularly comfortable going at people and saying, Hi, I'm Sylvia, and this is what I do. It can be a bit intimidating, especially when you, you know, when you go to a conference and you realize that you don't know most of the people there because it's a new field to you. Wow. Yeah. So Swain, would you like to give us some tips on how you can get your networks going, how you maintain those relationships? And in fact, I think you want them to be healthy relationships, isn't it? So it's not just networking for the sake of it but for, you know, maintaining healthy relationships as well. That's right. In the past, I would say that it, it's really important to actually meet people in person. I mean, these kinds of things with Zoom and sort of cross-continent, cross-country phone calls where you can actually do these video calls and it's become more normal, I think that's really helpful. But, you know, prior to COVID-19, I think it still really ran a lot on sort of in-person interactions. And that can be a little bit unfortunate because it sort of depends on where people are and what the travel schedules are. And there's lots of issues in terms of resources and access. But I would say that that's one of the main things that you sort of hit on. I, I touched on before is that a lot of the relationships I have, we're not really doing it for some purpose. I mean, I, I actually, I've read their papers or I heard them give a talk and I was very interested in what they're doing. And then you know, you go talk to them and sometimes you hit it off and sometimes you don't. That's just sort of how it is. I think as you do it more and you get more accustomed to that, it becomes a little bit easier or you sort of figure out how to sort of hit it off with more kinds of scientists. <laughs> and, uh, you know, seeing those people regularly at conferences is, is extremely helpful. I don't necessarily, you know, send a lot of people a lot of emails all the time. There's, there's people that I won't see for several years, right? But then when I see them again at a conference, it's actually even just great because it's been so long and we can sort of catch up and, you know, have a drink together and, and talk about what's been new. That kind of interaction really comes from the initial establishment of the friendship whenever you have a chance to do this, right? And if it's more genuine in terms of like you were interested in what they were doing and that was the basis of the conversation that then led to a few interactions at a conference or something like that, then I think actually those relationships, people will remember you and, and those kind of maintain themselves, right? I, I don't actively maintain these things in terms of, you know, sending emails or phone calls or stuff like this. Maybe things will change now if now that it's difficult to travel. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to start doing that kind of stuff. But certainly before 2020, even if it was like a two or three year period between when I would see people, oftentimes, you know, everyone sort of understands. And that, that was sort of a normal thing that you would just sort of run into people uh, sometimes after an extended time. 
Yeah, yeah. That's I guess that's just take it easy rather than you know making it work or hard work. You know when you when you meet people, <laughs> it would be hard for me to do all that work. <laughs> I would sort of fall off the、uh, fall off the train if I had to keep doing that. Yeah, yeah. And you know this it, it ends up being sustainable for me, I think, as well. And I think that's important. Yeah, that's a good point. You've mentioned that、um, you know attending conferences and meeting people in person is obviously the gold standard for networking. And that's right. But you know this could be inaccessible for a lot of researchers in low and middle income countries and global south. So I just want to hear from both of you. Actually, what do you think could be done to improve networking opportunities for researchers in coming from these regions? I mean, if I could just sort of follow up on that point, since I raised that, and then I'll just very quickly then let Sylvia take the rest of the next question. I do think that there are more and more seminars that are going online now. You, you're seeing probably the first wave of them, but、uh, as people kind of get organized and maybe get accustomed to the idea that this might be a long-term thing、uh, in terms of travel restrictions, more and more organizations are, are putting their seminars online. Some of them are still closed and and still just you know for their own institution, but there are some that are open. And I would say those kind of online seminars they can be a little bigger, but I think they're the same in terms of like the in-person seminars. What really happens if you if you want to sort of build a network or become kind of known, just ask questions, right? People notice who's asking questions at these seminars. Especially if it's junior people, right? So certainly at an in-person conference or an in-person seminar, most of the faculty kind of know each other. They notice who's asking questions and whether, you know, like if someone asks a sharp question, it doesn't matter who that is. And I think that's going to be the same on these online seminars as well. That culture is still developing, but I, I think for sure, you know, someone who's coming in from the outside and you know the name isn't recognizable to the normal people that are at that seminar, people will notice that. I think. Yeah, so Sylvia, actually, you work a lot with people coming from different regions, different parts of the world. What are some of the barriers that the people from these regions have in terms of accessing networks, and how how do you propose they can overcome them? Yeah, the barriers are usually financial barriers. Although we also have to take into account that there could be some, you know. Family issues as well, and and you know managing time and personal time, and taking time off to travel, usually long distances for some people to to go attend conferences. I think that barriers are quite clear to all of us. But、uh, in terms of what can be done, yeah, the internet is your friend, right? So anything that you can attend online, usually the speakers provide contact details. So if you don't ask a question during the seminar for whatever reason, you can always follow up later. Say, hey, you know, I heard your talk here and there,、um, and I thought it was interesting, and I was wondering this or that.、Uh, that's a good way to also get in touch with people. Obviously, social media. There are a lot of scientists on Twitter these days. You can follow them, and they follow you. And you know, if that's your kind of thing, it's a good way as well to get to know people a bit more and to have a platform that allows you to contact them directly. Yeah, those are the things really that that I can think of. You know, I was just thinking about this.、Um, so we connect a lot with people through Twitter, through LinkedIn, and I was wondering if. Either of you have ever met someone whom you've actually connected with, you know, on social media or on LinkedIn, and you've actually gone on to do something like collaborate or write a grant?、Uh, is this something that has happened <laughs> to you before? Almost, actually, I did have talks to people following up from a contact via email or via 
social media and we've discussed possibilities of collaboration. It, it didn't always come to fruition, but it definitely started the conversation. Yeah. And you, Swain? Yeah, I would say the same. I think it'll happen eventually, but there's there's no specific example yet. I've only been on Twitter for a couple of years, though. I think sometimes it takes a bit of time to get these things going. But there, there certainly have been some contacts I've initiated through there. You've given several interviews and talks. You've given a TED talking. How important do you think <laughs> were they to building your social capital? I, I don't actually know how many people have seen those, to be totally honest. I do hear, if I'm meeting someone new or someone's interviewing, that they've looked up my TED talk. So, so I, I guess it is a bit visible. So I think that helps. Um, if you think about it, uh, every time you, if I, if I see someone's name and I always wonder, so who is this person? That's the first thing you do is Google them. And if they are present on the web and this is something that's present, um, then it comes up, right? It, it used to be that um, I knew that I was not on YouTube. And now <laughs> uh, there's a few YouTube links that come up. I think in terms of general advice, though, you know, if, if we're talking about for more junior people that are trying to build their networks, the, you know, this is definitely something that for me, I think, came after I got to a more senior position. And I, I think there's a lot of things in academics that are like this, right? So there may be some other kinds of things where you would get visibility. So being a reviewer for papers or being an editor of a journal and then being interviewed by media or, you know, being asked to give these kind of public talks. For me, those came after, you know, I, I already had the kind of academic position and the academic credentials. And so I would say that, yes, it's probably true that those help my current social capital now. They're kind of more visible, but those may not be so useful in terms of trying to engineer or like trying to sort of plan out, you know, how do you manage this and build your own network, right? And, and kind of get off the ground. And I think some of the things that Sylvia mentioned and, and that we've been talking about, you know, attending talks, especially since they're online, there are other online things that you can do that really take away the, the kind of distance barriers, right? So Twitter, LinkedIn, these kinds of things, if you engage with those platforms, certainly people will notice eventually. I mean, it, it doesn't always happen immediately, but you know, if you're providing good content and you're providing good opinions and you're engaging and people like what you're saying, that's where a lot of that networking comes from. People notice because there's a lot of voices on Twitter and it's pretty loud and boisterous. But at the end of the day, there's a very large number of people who are very quiet, whether that's at a seminar, whether that's at a conference, whether that's on Twitter. It is going to be very difficult to be noticed uh, if, if you're just quiet most of the time. This does get to this idea that you guys were talking about. How do you get over that fear of taking that first step? Because it is frightening <laughs> you know, to speak up yeah. the first time. Yeah. <laughs> but it, you, you kind of got to do it. So I attended a talk before lockdown and where I've seen, I noticed you because she asked the question, she was sitting just next to me. And I remembered months later that we attended the same talk. So I think it has an importance to sort of know people, get to know the research. And you see, do you think this talk that you attended, the Cabana Network, do you often go on and how good is Cabana to I have to confess that I don't go often to their talks. A big part of it is that I also travel quite a lot for work and I am not always around in the campus. But I think you make a good point in saying that because for maybe the first, I don't know, however many years of my career, I was terrified of asking questions uh, during talks. 
Um, and I would go to the speaker afterwards and ask um, a one-to-one question, perhaps. It took me a long time to sort of build the confidence and also to understand that it seems to be an, an issue for a lot of women, or at least it used to be an issue for a lot of women. It was mostly men that would ask questions at conferences and seminars. And so that also motivated me, you know, to say, no, we, we need to change this and and my questions are as good as anyone else's. And so I, I started to do it more often. So I agree that that's something that will make you visible. And if you are not very confident to, to do it openly in front of everyone, at least don't keep the question to yourself and go and talk to the speaker after the talk and ask them what you want. I really like what Sylvia is saying. I mean, it is true. It's super scary to raise your hand with a bunch of strangers in, in a conference, especially if you're a junior person, right? And this is the first time you're attending a conference or you know, it's the first time you're, you're in the field. That is really scary. And so Sylvia, I think, highlights a couple of things that you can do to kind of take the steps up to there. Right, so go to talk to the speaker afterwards or catch them at the mealtime or if there's a, a tea break afterwards. But I would say that even before that, one of the things that is important is that you just sort of develop your own thought process and your own kind of perspectives on science. And, and one way that you can do that that hopefully is a little bit less pressure is even if you're not asking questions, just practice talking about these ideas with your friends or with some of your colleagues after the talk, right? And you'll get the feedback in terms of like, here was my initial reaction to this. What did you guys think of this? Do you think that was interesting, right? And I think there's sometimes that even then can be a little bit difficult, you know, if the, if the topic is a little bit out of your area, it can be a little bit uncomfortable to sort of even have a conversation with some of your friends about what that what that talk is. But, you know, I, I think there are, are places where you can do this and get the practice in terms of expressing your ideas and debating these things. You know, many talks will just have different ideas that like are not are, are just interesting and have some implications. And you should practice that in whatever forum or whatever way feels comfortable for you. And that's the kind of practice that you need that eventually you know what your ideas are like and how people react to them. And that gives you the confidence then to either go up to the speaker afterwards to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one, and then eventually I think you can build yourself up to, yeah, raising your hand and asking in front of the big audience. <laughs> so basically, you should always be practicing your building your confidence with, you know, the more you interact with people. And I think so. And, and this is what I tell the students and postdocs in my lab is that, you know, in lab meeting, this is where we're practicing this stuff. If you're going to go to a conference, you know, I want you to engage and really kind of learn stuff, engage with it, like see what's useful for you. What should you bring back to the lab? And, and if, if you can't do that, or if it's, if it's a little bit difficult for you to do that here, just in the context of our own lab, then you know, it, it just seems like it's probably going to be more difficult for you at an at a international conference. And Swain, in your case, the networks that you've, you've been involved in, you know, what contribution or impact are they having on global health? Yeah, well, we're, we're still trying. And I, I would go back to that groupie streptococcus the newly discovered root of Group B streptococcus infections that I, I mentioned. So that outbreak in 2015 was the first time that we had seen Group B streptococcus cause foodborne infections in humans. And so that led to this question of like, why is this happening? And it was associated with consumption of raw fish in Singapore. 
and the fish in Singapore, you know, Singapore is a small country and all the stuff is imported. So that directly led us outside to the region where there's a lot of aquaculture going on. And so one of the things that, again, in terms of network building, I certainly can't say that I did this all myself. And I, I certainly can't say that I actually was leading this. I, I was trying to help support the efforts to build a kind of regional network where people could then start sampling fish and start looking for human strains. And what that led to over the next few years was there was a network built throughout all of Southeast Asia. We had about five or six countries that were contributing strains of groupie streptococcus that uh, were isolated from fish and humans. And we discovered that that same strain that was causing the outbreak in Singapore in 2015, that had actually been all throughout Southeast Asia. It was all over the place. And it was causing disease in humans all throughout Southeast Asia. And then from his, some historical collections, again, these were all through sort of making connections. It's really one of my collaborators here in Singapore that really went out and did all the heavy lifting in terms of pulling that network together. We found that that foodborne group B streptococcus infection we think has been in Southeast Asia for at least 20 years, but no one ever knew. Where that's going now, now that we've seen it's a regional problem, we've been able, again, through the efforts of a lot of collaborators, and, and this is all kind of people skills, for mostly from my collaborators, right? This is all networking. We were able to get introductions to people from WHO and from FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is a, a, another UN agency. And so that has now led to that they've recognized this problem and recognize that this is something that's unrecognized and, and really the governments may need to do something about it. So one of the things I'm really excited about is we're holding a risk assessment. It's sort of a formal process from the Food and Agriculture Organization to actually assess What's the risk to the food supply and what's the risk to public health for this groupie streptococcus strain that's, that seems to be all over Southeast Asia, right? And, you know, all that stuff, I mean, there, there was a lot of science, a lot of genomics that we did at the beginning, but hopefully, you know, you can kind of see that none of that would have happened if it was just focused on the science itself, right? There was a lot of networking that happened throughout the region, reaching across borders, reaching across fields from human health to aquaculture farms or, or veterinary health, and then going with government agencies. And so, you know, I, I really have to credit my collaborator. So his name is Timothy Barkham here in Singapore. And there's another great collaborator that we had, uh, Ruth Zadox, who uh, was up in Glasgow, and now she's in Australia. But it really was tapping on their networks in the region, as well as with, you know, the UN agencies that then allowed us to put all of this work together and then couple that with the science that now has led to, you know, hopefully what may be the biggest impact that I'm having from my science, which is, you know, there's going to be this meeting, there may be some recommendations and hopefully some governments will take notice and start to uh, address this as a countrywide problem or regional problem. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I suppose with, you know, Sylvia, your project is still early days, but um, do you see this kind of we have seen a lot of specific examples of, of impact in terms of health in local or regional national level. But I thought when you're talking about impact in the community, you meant, you know, like very specific changes in health and improvements in health that are sustained and, and long term, which is something well, I'm that, sure that'll come with time, yeah. that we can really measure in a short span of time. Okay, we are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be back soon.
This episode is supported by Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, a program which develops and delivers training and conferences that span basic research, cutting-edge biomedicine, and application of genomics in healthcare. Through engaging and networking, the events educate, inspire, and transform careers worldwide. This episode is also supported by the Wellcome Sanger Institute. It undertakes large-scale research that forms the foundations of knowledge in biology and medicine. It uses the power of genome sequencing to understand and harness the information in DNA. The Sanger's discoveries are used to improve health and to understand life on Earth. This episode is also supported by social entrepreneurship to spur health. The SASH group uses crowdsourcing to enhance health and health research with a focus on low- and middle-income countries. The podcast is about mentorship and supporting careers. And since networking is an important aspect of one's research career, what role can a mentor play in helping early career scientists to build relationships? Sylvia, you mentioned that as an undergrad, no one told you you should be networking and you didn't really know how to do it at the beginning. What advice you would give to young researchers now at the start of their career? Um, yeah, to go for it. If there are people that you want to meet, you have the opportunities to go to a conference and um, you may be shy to approach them directly. Ask someone else in your group if they know them and say, hey, could you introduce me? If that's not the case, do it. But also, I think it's something that you have to do it well Uh, maintaining who you are, right? Um, I have met at conferences people that seem to come with a plan and a list of everyone that they want to meet and talk to. And it does come across. You do notice that it's um, a bit impersonal sometimes, or you even notice that they've done homework and they, you know, read specific things, but it's really the quality of the interaction and um, getting to know that person a little bit that will then maintain, you know, a sustainable relationship, a sustainable collaboration. It's not just about making that initial contact, but then, you, you know, you have to come across who you are I think it's also important then to understand if you're interested in fostering international collaborations that it's also about having some understanding of the differences in culture, having some curiosity for the, you know, the culture of, of the other people that you work with and trying to enrich yourself with that and also to, you know, provide maybe some tidbits of your own uh, background and your own culture um, to people that will appreciate them. And that is what really, you know, fosters a collaboration in, in the long term, I think, on top of the science, of course, you know, and on top of what you are working towards. And Sven, you already mentioned the importance of lab meetings, for instance, to build up confidence for then the students can go on in conferences and be confident enough to ask those questions and present their work. But what else do you think, uh, as a senior scientist, you can do for the early career? Well, not senior or middle career senior scientist. <laughs> you so. call me senior? <laughs> <laughs> you don't look senior at all. But from a more experienced scientist, what can you do to help your early career scientists? Before I get to that, I, I, I really want to uh, echo some of the things that Sylvia was saying, right? Be genuine. That's really important. And it's not that doing homework is a bad thing. I actually think that's that that's probably a good thing. But if it if it's that kind of homework is like you're gonna try to okay, we gotta meet these or I gotta go meet this person and that person and just because of this XYZ reason. And it's not out of some genuine curiosity or, you know, desire to talk science. I completely agree with her that that, that gets seen. 
The other thing that she mentioned was this idea of build your network, which is you already know some people. There are people in your lab, or it might be if you're a junior person, it's going to be you know the more senior people in your lab, or or maybe your your boss, right? Your your PI, and that's your initial network, and that's where it starts. And they'll have their networks as well, and so you know that's how it builds. And I would say that that's really how my network started. My postdoc advisor was really good at introducing me to whenever we would go to conferences. You know, he he would bring uh, a lot of the lab to conferences, and then you know he would introduce us to people, and that was really nice. And I I, I think that also was something that perhaps was a little intimidating when it first happened, right? But then that was really a, a helping hand to sort of get over that fear. And so this is definitely something that I try to do. If I have a chance to go to a conference with people from my lab, I, I do try to make sure, even if they feel uncomfortable, <laughs> I do try to make sure that I introduce them to people that I know that I've met, right? That I think they might get along with and, and try to seed that conversation. It sort of depends. Sometimes, like I'll try to actually get out of that conversation so they can talk, or sometimes, you know, you get the feeling that maybe I should stick around so that they don't feel too uncomfortable. But so those are the kinds of things that I try to do, and and it really just comes from the things that my mentors did for me in the past, and that's where I learned from. And hopefully, it'll be as effective for them, and will be something that they'll be able to pass on to the next generation as well. I agree completely. You know, in a more junior time, I've also experienced different ways that a supervisor would do that. And I think that makes a difference between a supervisor and a mentor, which is something that you've touched on um, abundantly in this podcast. So, you know, usually your PhD supervisor or your postdoc supervisor will be also quite busy at a conference, making their own connections and uh, maintaining their own network. And you can tell them that you want to meet certain people, but also sometimes they just do that by their own accord. You know, they just say, hey, come and meet this and that, or they bring people to your poster. And that's because they understand that it is very important that you start building that network from an early stage. Wow. You've obviously had had some experiences. You've learned from your past mentors and supervisor. And actually that resonates with our theme of this podcast, which is pay it forward, right? So what you learn, the good things you learn from your mentors, you can pass them on. And in fact, you are paying it forward by being on this podcast and telling everybody about how to network and stuff. And give us great tips, yes. So we're now reaching the end of our segment and uh, we just want for both of you to uh, give us some take-home messages. This is a very uh, important uh, topic for researchers, not only early career, but I think researchers at all stages. What are some of maybe one or two statements that you'd like to, to, to share with the audiences? This has been a lot of fun chatting with you guys. So th- thanks again for having me on here. If I had to sum up, uh, I would say that the, the two big things would be, one, you really have to be genuine and true to yourself. And... I think if you have a, a true interest in science and a true interest in people, right, those two things are very powerful when they go together. And those two things people will see. And if that's the approach that you're taking when you're going to talk to somebody new, that there's actually genuine curiosity to learn more, to, to sort of understand their perspective about what they're working on, I think that's going to come through. And then the other thing would be to practice, right? So we always talk about international conferences and just go and go, go up and talk to somebody, right? But there are smaller steps before that, 
there's smaller steps before you go and see a Nobel Prize winner standing in the coffee line and you just go talk to that person, right? There's there's smaller steps in terms of do this in in your department. Do this with other faculty that, you know, maybe there's other faculty in your department or in another department and and practice talking science, practice articulating your ideas or thinking through during conversation, because I think that's what a lot of networking is, actually, for better or worse, we all kind of like talking about and thinking about science. And, And a lot of the conversations we have at conferences or when you make a connection with a scientist, it will just sort of turn to science. It'll be about talking science, right? And thinking through things. It's not It's not a one-way kind of transmission, right? You want to be there as an equal partner in that conversation. And that just takes a lot of practice that you can be doing all the time, I think. Thank you. And Sylvia? Well, I agree with what Sui said. Um, I think that sums up very well some of the things that we discussed. And I think that when you approach people or when you talk to people to, to start building your network, remember that we are all kind of on the same boat. We're all people. And, you know, most of us have some kind of like reticence sometimes to do this. Not everyone is like really comfortable talking to other people. And the good thing is that you already know that you have something in common with them, which is your science and your interest for science and your interest in in discussing their science as well. So it's not as hard as it may seem in the beginning. Once you start, the communication will flow and then you just take it from there. And like Swain said, just be yourself and good luck with uh, establishing all your new networks. Wow, this has really been an insightful uh, discussion. I'd like to thank both of you for joining us and I'd like to just ask you to share where we can find you on, on Twitter, if you could give us your your Twitter handles. Yeah, um, my Twitter handle is Silargi, S-I-L-A-R-G-I. And I'm on Twitter at Swain Chen, so that's Swain, uh, S-W-A-I-N-E, then an underscore and then C-H-E-N. I'm also uh, on the web at uh, swainchen.github.io. I'm Googleable and also on YouTube, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and for our listeners, uh, well, thanks for tuning in. Please follow us on Twitter at Mentor Podcast, where you will let you know when new episodes are released. You can also listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud by searching for Your Digital Mentor Podcast. You can now reach us by email, so please send your comments and questions to inquiries at yourdigimento.net. And as always, information on this episode will be in the description box, including how to connect with our guests and also links to more information and resources. Finally, our goal is for the podcast to be shared as a resource. So please remember to tell people about us. <laughs>